the congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we, we remembered with the Lord's Supper, we remembered together as a congregation the death of Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper is about, right? It's about the death of Christ. Jesus told his disciples to eat and drink the bread and the wine, symbolizing his body and blood that was broken, that was shed, and to do that in remembrance of him. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Paul writes that as, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. So the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of Christ's death. But the remembrance of Christ's death, congregation, is not something that is not just meant to be something we do every three months or so and then continue life as we always have. The remembrance of Christ's death, every remembrance of Christ's death is meant to be something that transforms us. Something that helps us grow in grace. To, to grow, helps us to grow in godliness, to, to help us to grow in being more holy, more like Jesus Christ. In other words, we ought to be profiting from the remembrance of Christ's death. But it's so easy not to. It's so easy to go on from here and to fall back into the same old patterns of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. It's so easy to almost totally forget the gospel promises, even the gospel promise that we heard this morning, the promise that God, who has begun a good work in you, will perform it. He will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Instead, we go back to living in fear, fear that we won't make it, fear that God won't keep us, or perhaps we totally forget about the whole idea of it being brought to completion. We forget about the need and God's purpose for us that we, that we be changed. We proudly think that we can do it. We can do the Christian life, life. We can live the Christian life on our own until the battle with sin gets so hard, so difficult. that We give in to discouragement, to despair, and we're even tempted to give up. You ever have that? You know, that was a struggle in some ways for the Galatian Christians. We read it earlier in Galatians 3, or we read it earlier in Galatians 3. Paul writes there, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? It's interesting to note that those two words, begun and made perfect, are the exact same words that Paul uses in the text we looked at this morning. In Philippians 1, verse 6. Perform, perfect. Made perfect. Begun, begun. It shows us then, doesn't it, how prone we are by nature. How prone we are to rely on ourselves instead of on God. So, how do we profit? How do we profit from a remembrance of Christ's death this morning? So that we go on from here. So that we go into this week and into the months ahead growing in grace, growing in, in, in faith and in holiness and, and in Christ-likeness, resting more in God and less on ourselves. Well, we, we profit, dear beloved, by understanding and by reflecting on the great significance of Christ's death. And that's really the, the, that significance, the significance of Christ's death at the, at the Bible-based teaching of Lord's Day 16. That, that's, 
Rather, that, that's, what's this, that's what's being taught in Lord's Day 16 in, in the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 16 is mostly about the death and the burial of Christ, although question 44 is about the somewhat controversial phrase, he descended into hell, but for simplicity's sake, I'm including all of it under the subject of Christ's death. And so we want to consider the, the significance of his death as it's explained in Scripture, including also the end of Galatians 2 and the first half of Galatians 3 and in Lord's Day 16. So our theme, with God's help tonight, is, is profiting from the remembrance of Christ's death. We'll consider its humbling necessity, its transforming effect, and its fortifying comfort. So let's begin. Let's begin by looking at the humbling necessity of Christ's death. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to lay down his life? Why did he have to give his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out? That's what question 40 in the catechism is basically asking. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? And and the Bible-based answer the catechism gives is, is this. Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. The death of Christ, it's saying, was essential to the satisfaction for our sins. It was essential to our salvation, to our justification. In other words, the only way for us to be saved from the holy and just wrath of God that we deserve because of our sins, the only way for us to be saved, including justified and declared righteous with God, accepted by God, is by the death of Christ. And that's really Paul's big point in Galatians 2 and 3. You know, sometimes we think of it as it's justification by works or justification by faith, and that's true. But the reason it's justification by, fa- by faith is because of Christ's death. Earlier in Galatians 2 and verse 11, Paul relates how he withstood the apostle Peter because he, he confronted Peter because Peter, out of fear of some of the Jewish Christians who who came from James, it seems, he had stopped eating with the Gentiles. Why? Well, because the Jewish laws, they they forbid eating with the Gentiles on the basis of of the Old Testament. Gentiles were uncircumcised and therefore they were unclean. And and so Jews, you you don't mix. You don't eat together, fellowship together in that sense. But why did Paul make such a big deal about this? Because Peter, you see, by his actions... He was, in effect, denying the gospel. By suddenly no longer eating with the Gentiles, Peter was acting as if our works, as if our law-keeping somehow contributes something to our salvation. But they can't. Not even the littlest bit. And Paul makes that so clear in, in, verses two, in Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. We'll read those verses again. He says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, as Perceived, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of or faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ. And when he says we believed in Jesus Christ, he's, the central thing about Jesus Christ is that he died. He died and he rose again, but he died. So we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of or in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall no flesh be justified. 
So Paul is, is saying here that the only way to be justified, the only way to be saved from our sins is by Christ, by his death. Jesus had to die. He had to die because there was no other way for sinners to be saved. If there was, Paul says, if, if righteousness comes by the law, he says in verse 21, then Christ is dead in vain. We cannot save ourselves, congregation. Not even a tiny bit. The death of Christ, the death of the Son of God, was the only way satisfaction for our sins could be made. The reason Christ had to die was not first and foremost to be an example for us. He is that, of course. But the reason he had to die was first and foremost because there was no other way to make satisfaction for our sins. There was no other way for us to be saved. Why? It's because of who God is. Because of who God is. He is perfectly holy. He reveals himself in his word as what? As, as a consuming fire. That means he's he's. He's burning with holiness. He is perfectly, he is infinitely just. He cannot overlook even the the smallest sin. He cannot ignore sin. He cannot do what maybe sometimes you children do when your parents tell you to clean up your room. Uh, Maybe you just put things under the bed and you, you, you put things in the closet and just pretend that it's cleaned up. He can't do that. God can't paper over sin. God is so holy, so good, and so just. And our sins, congregation, our sins, even the smallest sinful thought, even one single sinful word, not to mention our sinful actions, are so vile, so evil, so wicked, that for us to be saved, for us to have fellowship with God, for us to have reconciliation with Him, required the death of His Son. There is no other way because he is just and because he is true. He is faithful. He cannot deny himself. He cannot ever be unjust. He cannot ever be unrighteous and unholy. Death is God's sentence for sin. And he cannot undo that. He cannot repeal that sentence because he is unchangeable. He is unchangeably just. He is unchangeably good. He is unchangeably holy. And we are sinners. All of us, all of us break God's law. None of us keeps it perfectly. None of us loves God perfectly with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. None of us loves our neighbor. None of us loves our neighbor perfectly as ourselves. We don't. We just don't. We sin. So how can we be saved? How can God's justice be satisfied? There's only one way. I know I'm repeating myself, but we need to have this pressed home on our hearts. There's only one way for you. There's only one way for me. The death of the one whom we remembered this morning. The death that was proclaimed in the Lord's Supper, the death of the Son of God. A death proven and underscored, as question and answer 41 points out, by his burial. 
The death of the Son of God. That's what was necessary for our salvation. Your salvation. My salvation. Shouldn't that disturb us? Shouldn't that humble us? Shouldn't that humble us? You see, what it makes clear, congregation, is that we are all completely and equally unworthy of salvation. Maybe you have made a mess of your life. Or maybe you have managed to keep it all together, at least on the outside from what others can tell. But it doesn't matter, congregation. All of us are equally unworthy in ourselves of salvation. None of us have anything to boast of. Nothing. All of us need nothing less than this to be saved. The death of the Son of God. And so, beloved, as we go forward from this Lord's Day, as we go, whether we went to the Lord's Supper or not, all of us, older ones, younger ones, young people, children, all of us should go forward in deep, deep, deep humility. And I realize, I realize what the temptation here is, because I know it myself. Temptation is to think, I hope this person, I hope those people are listening. Then you're missing the point. The point is, and I'm speaking to myself here, but I'm also seeking to to be a faithful messenger too, to speak to you. The point is that you, you, regardless of, of whether those other people are listening or not, the point is that you go forward in humility. That you go forward recognizing your desperate condition left to yourself. That you go forward not, not pointing out, it's not wrong to, to, to challenge people and all that, but not always pointing out and focusing on all the sins and the failures of others, but confessing your sins and your sinfulness, confessing you are not worthy. You are not worthy of God's acceptance of yourself. You are not worthy of God's salvation. But you are so far gone, left to yourself, left to yourself, that you need nothing less than the death of the Son of God to be saved. The point is that you go forward into the weeks and months ahead, not thinking of yourself as better than anyone else, but humbling yourself before God and before others, even if it's hard and uncomfortable, even if it means that something you did years ago, you need to go to that person whom you sinned against and you need to repent. And you need to ask their forgiveness. humbling yourself before God and before others, showing others love and kindness, even if they're not like you, even when they don't show love and kindness to you, even when they, in in, in your opinion, don't deserve love and kindness. You see, the reality is you don't either. I don't either. We all, all equally deserve hell. The only way any of us can be saved is for satisfaction for our sins to be made to God. And the only way that satisfaction could be made 
was by the death of the Son of God. The death of the Son of God was 100%, is 100% necessary for salvation. How deeply humbling that should be for every single one of us. Is it for you? How it should keep us from relying on ourselves and on our works for, for salvation, either for our initial salvation or for our continued salvation. And how patient and loving that should make us be toward each other or not. And how humbly grateful, how humbly grateful and thankful we should be to God for the death of his son. Because he really did die. He did. He did what was necessary. And if you're here and you, you haven't yet put your faith in him, you need to. That how humbly grateful and thankful God's people should be to him for the death of his son. Because he really did die. His burial confirms it. And you see that changes everything. That changes everything. This brings us to our second point. We've seen the humbling necessity of Christ's death. But now secondly, we want to consider the, the transforming, its transforming effect. Its transforming effect. You know, Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 21 that if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. That's what he says. But his whole point in this, in this, in this whole passage is that Christ is not dead in vain. He's not. Because our righteousness, our salvation does not and cannot and never will come by the law. By our, our own obedience to the law. It was never even meant to. It comes by faith. It comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross. Through his becoming a curse. He became the savior. He, salvation, the salvation of all who look to him. Fully and completely. And that transforms everything. It transforms death, doesn't it? You know, Paul doesn't highlight that so much here in Galatians 2 and 3, but it's really implied. It's really implied in, in, in the whole doctrine of justification and part of our salvation. But, but question and answer 42 of the Catechism especially does highlight it. The, the question is this, since then Christ died for us, since he died for those who trust in him, why must we also die? Well, that's a good question, isn't it, children? You think about it for a minute. The Bible tells us that death, that the death is the wages of sin, right? It's God's punishment. It's God's sentence on sin. But the Bible also says that Christ died to save sinners, to save them from their sin. So why do we, why do you still have to die? Is the Lord's death on the cross not enough? Is it, is it not sufficient? That's really the question. And it's a very real question you might struggle with. Perhaps when a believing loved one dies. Or perhaps when you yourself are facing death. You can feel anxious. You can feel afraid. Uncertain. Why does he, he why, why does she, why do I have to die. Is Christ's death not enough to save us? Is God's justice not fully satisfied? Is he still angry with me? But the Catechism's answer is, is certain and emphatic and it's full of comfort. Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. But what is it then? It's only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. 
In other words, dear anxious believer, Christ's death has a transforming effect on your death. Your death is not God's punishment. It's not God's judgment for your sins. It is, it, it is that for those who are without Christ, who don't trust in him. But, but for believers, death isn't a sign of God's wrath anymore. It's not God's punishment for sin. It's God's abolition of your sins. His removing, his, his fully removing and putting an end to your sins. Think of the, the thief on the cross. Jesus said to him, today you shall be with me in paradise. Paradise isn't paradise if there's sin. When we die, sin for the believer is done. After death, as Kevin DeYoung put it, after death, we won't think another proud thought. We won't snap at our children again. We won't face another temptation to lust ever again. What sweet relief. Yes, what sweet relief. Don't you agree? Doesn't it almost make you want to die? Doesn't it, even when in one sense you still dread it, yes, I know, but doesn't it make you want to say with Paul, to die, that's gain, that's gain, that I'll be with Christ and I'll sin no more. What sweet relief to be done with sin forever. But our death is not in our hands, beloved. Our times are not in our hands. It's in God's hands. And in the meantime, he wants us, he wants us to serve him in this life as long as he gives us to live. Ah, but you say, how can I? How can I when I still have so much sin in me? Well, that's the wonderful thing about Christ's death. It doesn't just transform your death. It transforms your life. It transforms your life. The catechism brings this out in answer to, to the question, what further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? And this wonderful Bible-based answer is this, that by virtue thereof, that by, the, by the death of Christ, by virtue of Christ's death, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now that answer, congregation, comes almost word for word, straight out of two chapters in Romans, Romans 6 and Romans 12. But we see it also in the first part of Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul says there in Galatians 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So Paul's been vigorously, he's been vigorously defending the truth of the gospel. The truth that we are saved not by works, but by faith in Christ. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that our lives as believers aren't changed. Salvation through Christ alone changes everything. And it changes it radically. Radically, to use Paul's language, this is radical language. The old you, the old self, the sinful self, I, the, the old I, is crucified with Christ. It no longer lives. It's, been de it's dead and it's been buried with him. What does that mean? That means sin no longer has dominion over, over God's people, over those who are trusting in Christ. You're free. I'm free. All who believe in Jesus Christ are set free from sin, not just from the guilt of sin 
but also from the power of sin, from our bondage to sin. We're set free to live unto God, to live for God. That's what Christ's death means for you, dear believer. It means, it means you can say no to sin. You can refuse to sin. That's what God's word teaches. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean believers do say no to sin all the time. You know that. I know that. We too often do give in to temptation. We do sin. We are weak in and of ourselves. The Bible and our own experience testifies that we will fail. We will sin every day till our dying day. Think of Romans 7. That's why we need to keep coming back to Christ, whose death satisfies, whose death satisfies for all our sin. But you see, I think so often the reason we give into temptation is, is often, if not always, because we believe the lie that we have no choice. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. If we are believers, we not only won't want to sin, we don't have to sin. We can fight against sin. And every believer, true believer, will fight. Why? Because of our union with Christ by His Spirit. I encourage you to, later on tonight, read Romans 6. Reread Galatians 2, verse 20. If we are believers... We do not have to sin. What do I mean by that? Before conversion, we could not fight. We could maybe say no to specific outward sins, but our whole being was still governed by our sinful nature. But when we are converted, our sinful nature is in principle crucified with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, yet not we, but Christ lives in us. Christ's death transforms our lives. And you see then, what a death. The remembrance of that death this morning should give us great hope. It should give us great courage, dear believer. Because the battle is tough. You know that. I know that. The battle is tough. And we do fail. And we're going to face temptation this week. The world, the devil, and your own sinful flesh will all conspire to try and make you sin. And sometimes that temptation is going to feel so strong. And you're going to feel so weak. What can you do? What can you do? You think back to this morning. You think back to the death of the Son of God that we remembered in the Lord's Supper. And you remember that by his death and burial, your sinful self, your sinful nature, your old man is crucified, dead, and buried too. So that you can fight. You can fight against sin. You can live to God by His grace in dependence on Him. You can live in thankful obedience to God and His law by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit whom God gives, whom God gives to every believer. That's the transforming power, the transforming effect of the death of Christ. Yes, it will be a battle. It will be a battle. It will be a lifelong battle. But the victory is sure. The victory is sure because of the death of Christ. Doesn't this give hope to you, dear child of God? Perhaps 
perhaps you're listening and you haven't been living this life. You, you thought you looked to Christ before and you haven't been living this life. This transformed life, fighting against sin. Maybe because of backsliding. Maybe because you never ever came to Christ. Let the words of our text, the words of our text, bring you to repentance and give you hope. Give you hope because of the death of Christ. Maybe you are here and you're not in Christ. You're not looking to Christ. Don't you want this transformation? Don't you? Do you really want to keep living your life the way you are? Do you really want to keep living in bondage to your sin and to your misery? Do you? Do you want to live that way? Maybe you say, I like it. I like sin. You know, it's true. When you're unconverted, you don't just like sin. You love sin. But how foolish it is. How foolish it is to continue in bondage to sin. Because that means you're living under the wrath of God. And at any moment, you could die. It's true. You're not in control of your life. It's true for all of us. For believers, death won't be God's punishment. It will be an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. But for you, for you, death, death will be God's punishment. Yes, it will be a passage for you also, but not a passage into eternal life. Passage into eternal death in hell. I read somewhere this week, hell is that place where, where God no longer comes seeking sinners. He no longer comes calling out as he did in the Garden of Eden after Adam's sin. Adam, where are you? You'll never hear that question from God in hell. Don't go there, dear young people. Don't go there. Don't go there, dear children. Don't go there, dear older ones. Forget about how good sin feels to you now. It won't feel good forever. Forget about what your friends think. Forget about your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse thinks. Seek the Lord now while he may be found. Now he is calling, coming. Adam, where are you? He is calling in love and grace. But is he willing, you say, Would you tell me, is he willing? Go to him. Go to him. In him you may be reconciled. In Christ you may be reconciled to God. In Christ, it's all in Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's all in Christ. You look to him. You you cast yourself on him. In him you may have eternal life. Trust in 
the Son of God, and though you be dead, yet shall you live. Whosoever lives and believes in him, in Jesus, the Son of God, shall never die. That's the word of God. Well, then believe in him, trust in him, and you will be set free. Free already now from the guilt of sin. Free already now from your bondage to sin. And free, free, one day fully free from the presence of sin. Because why? Because he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He will perform it. He will bring it to perfection. He began it by his spirit and he will complete it by his spirit too. Christ's death changes everything, doesn't it? doesn't it? But lastly, and much more briefly, we want to consider the fortifying comfort of Christ's death. And I want to read with you again in this connection question and answer 44 in the Catechism. Question 44 asks, why is there added, he descended into hell? Now some of you know, you may know that this phrase is somewhat controversial. It wasn't originally part of the Apostles' Creed, but but the biggest problem is that it's, it's been a confusing statement historically. Some think it, it, means, uh, it just means that the Son of God descended into the grave. That's true. That's not really any different than saying he was buried. Others think it means that Jesus literally went to hell after he died. But that doesn't really square with Jesus' words on the cross. So you might be wondering, well, is it an unbiblical idea? Is it wrong to confess every Lord's Day? Well, no, it's not. Not if we understand it to mean that what Christ suffered in his life and especially in his dying on the cross was nothing less than hell. That was the essence of Christ's suffering and death. That's what it was all essentially and primarily about. He was descending into hell. And the comfort in that, as the Catechism says, is this. That in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this. But the Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and the torments of hell. That's what Christ's death, his suffering and death, was all about. What a strong what a fortifying comfort that is. He has delivered me. That's the Christian's comfort. He has, as Paul says in Galatians 3.13, redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone, everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might rest or might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's the comfort we have, beloved, when we have trusted in Jesus Christ. Then no matter what happens, even in all our many temptations, even in our greatest temptations, even in the most difficult of circumstances, circumstances that you might be tempted to say, well, I'm living in hell. As a Christian, you're not. You're not. You never will. In all the assaults from within us and outside of us, even when our conscience accuses us, even when our remaining sins threaten to overwhelm us and make us despair, even when things are hard and when trials come and when sickness comes and when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, 
we may know he has delivered me. He has redeemed me. Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Because you belong to him. He will never let you go. Nothing can separate us from his love, from the love not just of Christ, but of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Nothing can separate us from the love of the triune God. Christ's death, dear believer, means he has delivered you from hell. Do you see how significant the death of Christ is? The death of the Son of God. Will you and I profit from our meditation on it this evening and from our remembrance of it this morning? Oh, then let us walk humbly with our God, not proudly, foolishly looking to anything in ourselves for our acceptance with God, but looking to Christ, looking to Christ. For me to live is Christ. And let us live in confidence and in hope, knowing that death, even death, can't separate us from the love of God, but it will be the end of all sin and the passage into eternal life. Let us live in thankful dependence on Christ and let us live with purpose and with resolve, fighting against sin, fighting against sin with courage and confidence because our old sinful nature by faith in him is crucified, crucified, dead and buried with him. And let us wholly comfort ourselves in knowing that by the suffering and the death of Christ we have been delivered from hell, from the curse. And all that we have to go through in life, both the good things and the difficult things, as believers, is not a sign of God's wrath. It's God's love. God's love and his faithfulness. And one day, one day we will be and remain with the Lord. We will sin no more. No more. Can you imagine what a fellowship that will be? We will live forever with him in glory. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.